hospitality and slash service workers are only second to agricultural laborers in this country. And so that really needs to be dissected in terms of we also live in a country that has a sub-minimum wage and majority of the states, there's only like seven states, I believe, that actually provide a minimum wage. Hello and welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today I am speaking with Ashton Berry. Ashton is a Louisiana-based bartender, beverage consultant, and hospitality activist. She is the founder of Radical Exchange, an event organization that celebrates diversity and inclusion in the industry, and also, amongst other things, America's Table, a movement to raise political awareness around the needs of hospitality workers. On the episode, Ashton and I talk widely about the social changes that she is pushing for in the industry, how things have evolved over the past decade or so, and where they need to get to. We discuss some of the misconceptions around culture and how they've shaped the bar world as it is today, and then move on to events, discussing where they might fall short and how Radical Exchange is attempting to correct this. We delve into sociology, which, as you will see, is a discipline that Ashton is very well versed in. And I think throughout the episode, we attempt to establish some useful advice around what all of us can do to make our industry better for everyone. Ashton is a great ambassador for the industry as a whole. And while this episode is comprehensive in the themes it covers, I think you'll agree we could have gone on much longer. Okay, I am here with Ashton Berry. Hey, Ashton, how you doing? Hey, how are you? Good. All the better for you joining me. Um, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you reaching out. Absolute pleasure. So you are in New Orleans at the moment. I am. I am. I tend to travel a little bit across the U.S., but New Orleans is kind of my home base. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. Um, like many um, bartenders, I've been lucky enough to visit a few times Um all in the name of Tales of the Cocktails. And it's just uh, a calendar moment of the year for me, um, getting to spend a week in that city. It's so much fun. Yes, it's a beautiful city. I don't know how beautiful it is in the middle of summer with 90% humidity, but it's still, <laughs> great, it's still a great city. It's one of the, I think it's one of the things about New Orleans that I love. Um, I mean, we, you know, in the middle of uh, July, the weather just changes like that. Uh, it can be like blazing, glorious sunshine and then all of a sudden the streets are kind of a foot deep in water and it's chaos and um and then it changes back again and i don't know it's just this but perhaps it's a different feeling when you live there and you have to live through that every day but as someone who only visits it's wonderful i yeah i think it's different for people who are visiting than people who live there. i mean i love i wouldn't make this my home base if i didn't enjoy it but i definitely think that for people who are not from here, it's like the excitement of just being in New Orleans, where a lot of people who are locals actually kind of leave throughout the summer. It's the slowest season of the year. And you're in hurricane season. You're, well, you're preparing to enter hurricane season. So it's, um, you know, it's it's one of those kind of times of year, unless you're in the hospitality industry, a lot of people generally kind of take it as a time to travel, do other things, visit other spaces. Well, people like me, we, we, we come and we tend to only really see the French Quarter and we visit the kind of same dozen or so bars every single time, stay in the same kind of hotels, and then maybe go to a few events outside of that area. But we don't typically tend to see probably the real New Orleans. So um, for my own personal use as much as anything, what would you recommend to someone to do that's like a little bit less, like on, like, or a little bit more off the beaten path, a little bit less trodden? Um, you know, New Orleans is a city that's kind of influenced by like whatever is going on at the moment. It's a event-based city. It's a tourist city. Um, has been since its inception. So it really just depends on. I always tell people, you know, look up what's going on in the city at the moment. Um, there's oftentimes some type of festival or other things, whether it's super local going on. I always tell people they should always take a day and rent a car and go to Lafayette or um, do some tours outside of the city. There's generally, if you go online and you just Google like New Orleans Gov, like the tourism site will have a list of things that are happening. And I always tell people when you, before they come in town, look those up. Nice. Well, this, this episode is going to go out before Tales of the Cocktail, I think. So it should be useful for anyone who is um, visiting this year and wants to kind of check out stuff that maybe they haven't seen before. Yeah, I mean, I definitely recommend people, if they can't, if they have the time, I mean, 
Whitney Plantation is a great educational place that I think people should go. Um, it's the only plantation in the South and in um, and what the first in America that tells the uh, story of the slave trade in America from the slaves' point of view, and it's super educational. And it's one of those things that, like, whenever people come to town, I take them to, and they're always pretty in awe and kind of like, "Wow, I'm so glad that we did that." Yeah, those are all things people can do. Well, you should work for the Tourist Information Board. I, what, so, what took what took you to New Orleans in the first place? What drew you? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things about it you like, but I, you're from Chicago originally, right? I'm from all over originally, um, but I, yeah, I. Grew up in Chicago and in Memphis, Tennessee, um, mostly, but I grew up all over the, the U.S. Um, I've been coming to New Orleans since I was a teenager. Um, always wanted to live here. Decided to move here after moving back abroad wasn't really an option, and that was it. I've, I've lived a ton of places. I'm one of those people who doesn't really need a reason to move to a place. Um, if I decide that it's some place I'm interested in living or exploring, then I'm happy to kind of do the work to make that happen. And it just happened that I was like, I'm going to move to New Orleans. And then a job lined up and other things lined up, and it just happened very easily and very quickly. I decided I wanted to move to New Orleans, and then I moved here about six weeks later. You've been a sommelier as well, haven't you? I did want to talk about wine with you just for a little bit, if that's all right. Yeah, I generally don't call myself a sommelier. Um, just because, I don't know, over the years I found that it's more exclusionary than it is helpful um, to people. But yeah, I mean, I started out, my first love is wine. That's where I started out, and then the glass ceiling was so low, I needed to pivot, and I had a deep love for whiskey, and so it was a natural and easy kind of pivot. Mm. Yeah, um, so I want to talk about whiskey as well in that case. Uh, so with wine, well, I, I mean... Again, sort of tips for bartenders, because this is a bartender podcast, you know, a lot of people listening to this from all over the world will be young, up and coming bartenders. And I, often wine programs get lost a little bit with cocktail bartenders, I think. Um, and, you know, it kind of gets falls by the wayside. You need to know wine knowledge. I'm going to say this again. You need to know wine knowledge. When I, if you do not know wine, and I don't care what anyone has told you, I am not the best cocktail person. I am not the, you know, top. But one of the things that has always made me successful is the ability to get people something they would enjoy because I understand the span of beverage. I've worked at a beer bar. Um, I've worked closely with wine. And so when someone comes and tells me, um, they like a very specific wine. I understand what that flavor profile means, and I understand how to dissect that in ways to get them a drink that they would enjoy. If nothing for that, you should understand wine. Does that mean you need a super in-depth knowledge? No. But I think the days of creating these throwaway wine lists are done. You need to care about the wine list on your program as much as you care about the cocktails. It's a beverage experience, and anybody who comes to it you know, enjoy that experience, should be able to enjoy everything on your menu with equal value and quality. Um, I think, I don't think everybody needs to be certified. There's like this big thing where I've seen all these bartenders getting certified and I don't understand it. Um, one, it's really expensive. Two, it doesn't mean that you are knowledgeable in the wine education that is relevant to where you live. I think that people forget that you know, wine education systems are have a hierarchy of education that they teach people. And I'm saying this as someone who has level one through three of W set, by the way, before anybody's like, um, so they have a hierarchy of how they teach you about education. But is that helpful if you live in a place that only has access to wines that are not their purview or focus, or you aren't like, if like, is that actually relevant? And it, what kind of, how could you be using that same money to go to local places and spend your money on wine educationals or tutorials? Or how could you even be talking to a wine shop owner or a wine bar owner about having regular classes or trainings with your staff and vice versa? Because the fact of the matter is too many wine people don't have cocktail knowledge either. And it's ridiculous. You know, the number of people in wine who can't name the breakdown of classic cocktails is also ridiculous. Um, so I encourage people to do that, like go to wine bars, drink, um, and you don't need to love wine in order to have an understanding of it. Yeah. 
I, I totally agree. Knowledge exchange is a great way of doing it. Um, I, I mean, I spent a lot of my early years as a bartender working in restaurant bars. So we always had wine people knocking about. And it was so easy to just go, right, well, look, I'll make some cocktails for you guys. You pour us some wine to try. Tell us about that. And, you know, everyone wins and you get to try new stuff. And like, like you say, there's no reason why you, you need to do that within the confines of a restaurant. You can do it within the confines of a city. Um, you know, go and, go and visit, you know, wine shops or wine bars and do it that way. And also, I just think that I don't think that many up and coming bartenders realize the plethora of cocktail bars we have today is new. And like relative to the past is new. You know, you, yeah. when I was even 22, you weren't going into cities and having a whole, so, such a long list of cocktail bars that you weren't able to see them all. Literally, you could see all of them in a night if you wanted to, mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and so I think that part of that is that also, and I also think that one of the things that is changing about service and also why I think a lot of bar owners, bar owners, this is for you, need to hear is that many of many of you the service is not as good as it used to be. I'm just gonna say it. Service is nowhere near as good as it used to be in the industry. And I think a lot of this has to do with a lot of the OG cocktail bar people were groomed in restaurant bars, which means you had to have knowledge about all beverage plus food. Which means you were trained for a different type of service style than cocktail bars make. And I think that while no, I'm not saying train your bar staff to be a restaurant, because obviously not, I do think that we need to re-input some of that type of training to give people a really well-rounded set of skills. Um, it's an experience, like I said earlier, it's an experience. I, I think I think you're right, and I think I think part of what's happened in the last fifteen to twenty years is that the cocktail there, there are, like you said, there are way more cocktail bars and that are just doing cocktails. And that didn't really used to be the case. A lot, of, certainly in the UK anyway, a lot of the best cocktail bars were effectively addendums to restaurants, or they were the restaurant bar itself. There were very few sort of stand like just standalone cocktail bars. And so, as a result of that, that sort of rapid evolution, we've ended up with a situation where the the environment of a cocktail bar is quite insular, um, and it, it doesn't have access to sort of skills outside of making cocktails, really. So it misses the chefs, it misses um, the sommeliers, it misses the sort of so all the different types of service stuff you might get in a hotel or in a restaurant, um, the pot washes, all that kind of stuff. And so as a result, it's kind of made its own little rules around how this should work and that should work. And a lot of them aren't really the right or best or most effective or most sort of conducive way to operating well. And they don't translate. I mean, I think that that's the issue is that hospitality work is about translation. That communication and translation is the host of how you create an experience for your guest. And so if cocktail culture creates this insular language that does not translate to other hospitality spaces, yes, we'll get the people who think that Cocktail culture is really cool, and they'll come and they'll learn the language. But what about the individuals who are not interested in that, right? And 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 at the end of the day, these are businesses. We have to be grooming a clientele to be able to enjoy our experience and our bar culture in relationship to the other spaces that they go to. Um, and so, and again, I I think that I you know. I obviously enjoy cocktails. I think they're great, but I do. I, the number of younger bartenders I've spoken to are like I've only worked at cocktail bars, and are very proud of that. Which great. I'm also like, yeah, but you're missing this whole other experience creating kind of. It also just, you know, as someone who used to run a hotel bars, it also limits your toolkit in terms of how you're able to deal with multitasking, you know, being able to keep the mirrors going on the experience, even when there's issues. And I've noticed that, you know, it's much easier for me in a cocktail bar, obviously I'm someone in the industry to tell when things are going wrong than it is for me at a hotel bar or a restaurant bar. 
right? And I think a lot of that does have to do, again, with the different type of experience building skill sets than one is trained for in those spaces versus a cocktail standalone mm. bar. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I don't want to sort of create a like them and us thing, but it does seem like it's a different thing with the, the like, I, I guess we're about the same generation, roughly the same age, I've probably been doing it like 20, 25 years or whatever. Um, and you, we've just grown up in a slightly different hospitality environment than what someone who in their 20s is is experiencing right now in cocktail service, that is. Um, and it's so it's a different learning thing for them, you know? But, you know, and I don't mean to sound like an old. I know people are like, uh, she's just old. Look, I just turned 34. Yes, I'm oh. older. I'm that old, though. Like, um, I'm, you know, I'm not that far from my 20s, right? I started Resistance Serve when I was 27, <laughs> 28, about to turn 29. So, like, again, like, I am all about, but I think that, I think that today people are so focused on being so niche. And I think that one of the beauties of hospitality back in the day was that everybody had a little bit of knowledge everywhere that allowed them to be able to be like, oh, you just came from that place and understand the experience they just came from to be able to smoothly get them into the experience that they were now coming into. Um, and I think, I think hospitality kind of skills like that are really important. Yeah, I mean, niche can be good sometimes, not necessarily in the individual, but well, it's, sometimes specialists in certain fields can be good. You know, you go to a great, great, you know, agave bar, you want someone who's pretty niche about tequila and mezcal, right? But, um, and similarly, you want the bar itself to be niche, you know? You don't want them to be like, well, we've got a special on Cosmopolitans, you know, because that's not a tequila drink. But um, yeah, you're right. I think if you want... If you want a well-rounded career... But you do want to understand that they just came from a steakhouse. And you do want to be able to understand yeah. that they just, You know what I mean? And it's not about, like, not adhering to your niche thing, but it's about the translation of understanding. These people just came from a steakhouse. Oh, they're telling you that they just had these big red wines and blah, blah, blah. And not being so niche that you can't translate them into your experience and say, oh, you guys just came from there? That's yeah. amazing, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Like, you know what? Let me give you some of this pachuga because, like, I feel like that kind of savory, kind of meaty kind of meal that you had, this would be a great finisher and blah, 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 blah. Like, it's about the translation of being able to translate the experience that they have before you I think too often now we're trying to act like our experience in our bar are isolated from what's happening outside and they're not it's a part of the story people don't just go to one bar or one space unless it's like a coursed out dinner type of experience anymore they are generally on a journey going from place to place to place and it's our job to translate those and connect those dots of those experiences in ways that make them feel good whether that means they came in feeling a little crunchy from the last experience to translating that into them feeling good when they leave. Well said. No, it's, it's, I, I think what, what we're agreeing on is that, you know, you need that kind of foundation in understanding hospitality broadly and in all its different guises. And then, you know, with that, it doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, if you're working in a, in a you know, flavored pina colada bar, in Brazil, or you're, um, you know, making gin and tonics all day in South Korea, you'll, you'll have a, you'll know guests, you'll know service, you'll know the needs, desires, wants, of, on a, in a more sort of rounded way. Nice, that's cool. Um, so you operate a um, hospitality consultancy um, that develops social justice space and cultural events. So tell us a little bit about that and how it all got started. Yeah, so I have, I have, well, now I have three, but I have two companies. One is Front Facing, it's called Radical Exchange. Most people probably know of it because of the conference Resistance Serve, which is also hosted in New Orleans. It's the first conference, there are many of them now, but it was the first conference to focus on uh, the contributions of black, uh, black people to hospitality industry and from the diaspora. Um, and we cover everything from farm, farming, culinary, to drinks. Um, so it's not as focused as maybe a conference like Tales or food and wine festivals. It's really, really kind of um, large. And I was also frustrated that every conference I went to had one diversity panel, and they tried to take every issue and put it on one panel that was one hour and thought that that was sufficient enough to have a thorough conversation. Um, when oftentimes what it ended up being is a whole bunch of people talking about their personal experience um, without talking about the structural systems that were making them have these type of experiences. After doing pretty much a circuit of being at almost every 
in America at least, and many in Canada, I had done every conference two, three times over, be it, whether it be on a panel, whether it be workshops. And um, what I noticed was that there was a glass ceiling for me to be able to create content because there was no way to build buildable workshops in a space that each year just cleaned the slate and started new. Um, and I thought that that was also to the hindrance of our community because it didn't allow people to come back and say, hey, last year I learned this, I'd really like to build upon this. And so there was this issue where I would be going to a conference and people who, you know, the conference wanted me to put on the same workshop, but I'd be like, but these people have been here three years in a row, why would I do the same workshop? There's loads of, loads of stuff to talk about there. One, one thing that struck me um, that you said was around how you wanted to kind of shine a bit more light on how um law and culture and politics shape um hospitality and products that we use and all that kind of stuff and that's something that really um rings true for me T today certainly but um especially in the past where because i've done quite a lot of re research on the history of alcohol in, in my writing and it it's never ceases to amaze me how um legislation and um, you know the availability of products and farming have influenced the, the spirits um, and, and other products that we use behind the bar today and it's it's just fascinating to learn that you know you, we think that the flavors of tequila or, or, or of um, you know rum are um, you know intentionally made that way but more often than not they're really just a by, they're just the byproduct they're the impact of social pressures cultural movements and then legislation that kind of aims to tax or in some way leverage or exploit the availability of that ingredient or a workforce or, or the supply of that product uh yeah absolutely i mean that's right it on the money but also i think in america specifically i think and you know i don't think a lot of european countries realize this how hospitality is really in so many ways the building blocks of this country and we never talk about it. It's greatly erased and it's still erased. Um, the hospitality industry represents the second largest private sector employer in the US. But if you ask the average American, they would probably put airlines before us. They would put, you know, there's so yeah. many other industries that they would put before us not realizing that hospitality and slash service workers are only second to agricultural laborers in this country. Um, and so in terms of the private sector, and so that really needs to be dissected in terms of, we also live in a country that has a sub-minimum wage in majority of the states. There's only like seven states, I believe. Don't quote me, I may be wrong. Um, I've got my head seven states that actually provide a minimum wage um, to service workers that's state mandated. And the rest of the country, including Louisiana, um, pays an average of $2.35, sometimes a little bit more. I think it's the wow. federal average. And the rest of the money they're expected to make on tips. And that creates not only mm. a really disastrous um, power dynamic, but it also creates a system where the idea of consistency having a stable life is really, again, precarious, especially because many of these businesses don't offer health insurance in a country where we have no social safety net. Um, I mean, they don't even offer any type of basic. So it's, it really is, you know, and I think America is so used to it that they don't realize how, how messed up it is and how, um, and the legacy of it. You know, a lot of people don't realize the legacy of it and where it comes from. Um, so I try to do a lot of work you know, radical exchange resistance specifically has to, had tried to do a lot of work around that. Our second year, we focused on um, black women in labor, and we specifically t discussed rum and sugar plantations, and um, you know how the face of rum today is most predominantly men. Um, but the people who were back in the day, the people who were like in the fields versus who was actually working with the sugar versus who was distilling. Um, a lot of people don't realize that, that that was a lot of black women, right? Specifically in the Caribbean, mm -hmm. Louisiana, and that gets overlooked 
quite a bit, right? Um, and when people ask, they're like, well, why would it be black women? I'm like, well, you have to think about who also made beer because who was doing the labor that was next to the fire in the kitchens? I know there's a rich history of female distillers in North America and brewers as well. I mean, for a long time, brewing and distilling was sort of considered a kitchen craft, really. The longer the legacy of a system, the harder it is to shift it and the harder it is to even draw attention to it, right? Because it's just the normal, right? And people accept it for what it is. Um, and it, it means that change is that much more difficult. I think there's a couple of different things that have happened in specifically from the 90s on. And I think mostly is that um, with the resurgence of cocktail culture, um, history, History wasn't centered. History has been used as a marketing tool. It wasn't centered as a proxy for asking, are we establishing systems that make sure that we don't erase what's happened before? Um, I think, and I think that that's not uncommon for when industries have a resurgence, right? For people to get wrapped up in the excitement rather than the, are we building systems that allow everybody to kind of equally not only succeed in this area, but also are we giving credit in a way that has equanimity um, for the people who may not have been given the due diligence during their time. Um, and that's that's a shifty thing, right? Because, you know, I mean, I think I've, I've ruffled a few feathers in my day about discussing this, but I think that um, we work off of such a scarcity model that believes that if we talk about this, then we no longer give value to this. And the conversation should be about, we should be talking about both and the power dynamics of why those things happen historically. Um, and we should be making sure that we're not trying to take terms or ideologies of today and placing them on the past if those weren't actually relevant or um, the correct context then or we should just be making sure that we're really honest about what the context of those kind of systems were in history. Um, and that's kind of a lot of what I've tried to do with my work, um, even in trying to help people understand Repeal Day and the suffragist movement, um, because a lot of people, specifically with suffragists in Canada and America, have a very skewed understanding of what suffrages, suffrage, what the suffrage movement was about beyond um, banning the sale of alcohol. So do you think that the reason for the sort of skewed history is because the, the history is sort of written by the marketeers of the brands and so forth? Or, or is it, you know, people just cherry picking um, information that's not necessarily representative of the wider story? You know, who's at fault here with it, do you think? I think it's a little bit of everybody. And I don't know if fault's the right word. I think people gravitate to stories where they see themselves, right? And I think if publishing companies, mm -hmm. I mean, I think if anything, publishing has a lot to do with this on who they gave book contracts to. I think another th thing is that um, mm -hmm. history is a consensus. And unfortunately, in um, our industry, specifically the hospitality industry, we have either generally academics writing overly academic texts about an industry that they've never been a part of. So generally, they are taking historical counts. And I'm not saying that that's not valuable, but I do think you strip something of it when you don't understand the dynamics of the industry. So things get oversimplified in the historical context um, mm. because there isn't an understanding of the actual labor. So I think- You don't have, understand the dynamics of it as it is today kind of thing. Yeah, you don't understand in order to actually paint a understanding of how we got from there to here, right? Um, people yeah. understand yeah. bartending at its simplest, serving at its simplest. They do not understand the dynamics between guests and um, em employees. They do not understand the, the you know, chain of commandment from owner to day. Also, people tend to think that all restaurants are built equally. They don't understand the difference in hospitality businesses, right? And even their systems and structure of yeah. how they run. And so things get oversimplified in a way that I think are to the detriment of being helpful to people who are in the industry. I also think that there are some people who have written books that I won't say aren't valuable, but what I will say is that they cherry-picked what they felt was comfortable or the things that they liked while not getting context. I think to write about any book in America um, at any point in this country and never mention gender or race 
already tells you that this book is flawed and that it's been washed to create a certain mythology that makes people comfortable rather than actually making a critical assessment of like the industry then and why we're here now. Um, and then I, so I think it's on all fronts and I think that brands capitalize off of that um, as they do, right? Brands aren't here, brands are here to make money. They're not here to be community engagement forces, regardless of if those are marketing initiatives that they push in order to, you know, create people who will be gospel singers of their brand or consumers or whatever. And yeah. that doesn't mean that brands work um, and I also want to say this doesn't mean that brands work in bad faith. I think that there are brands that work in bad faith, and I think there's quite a few brands that work in good faith, you know? And then I think those there's those who are in between, right? Um, but I think that it's important to remember that in a world where trade is consistently getting fed information from brands, that when we don't have the luxury, say as, I, I, let's compare it to the chef world, that has so many different layers of people to bring consensus to what is being talked about, I do think it makes some pitfalls in the beverage industry. But on the other hand, I think that the beverage industry is leaps and bounds further than the food industry. I think the food industry is uh, so tied to legacy in this way that is actually detrimental to building new systems. Um, what we've seen in the beverage industry is a an adoption of language, an adoption of mainstream terms, an adoption of conversation that are happening in mainstream that the food world is struggling just to have. Do you think possibly the difference between food and drink is also something to do with um, alcohol being just a more social product, whereas food sort of can remain more entrenched in its sort of older, you know, ideologies or tropes or ways of working? I think that, like, food also it doesn't transform or change at the pace. Like now we see it do, now that we have YouTube and, and influencer and social media, we see like a kind of quickening pace. But you can't be in the beverage world and work off of what you knew five years ago. You will be outdated. You'll be outdated in two years, mm. right? Um, mm. But why is that? Why is that? Why is that the case with beverages and not with food, do you think? I think a lot of it has to do with the how quickly because it is social how quickly trends in the pace hmm. change but also it has to do with um the number of skews the number of products um if you're a chef you're not required to know every single type of cuisine or things of that nature if you're a beverage person you're not required to know every beverage but it would be insane for someone to be a cocktail or, or a bartender or um someone who is really high up and not have an understand global understanding of where cocktail culture is as a global right you can't you don't have to do that as a food person you can just know about texas barbecue and that's all you do right that's not the case. That's all, you know? that's all you need to know about anyway, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> like, like and that's like, I, I'm, Memphis, I'm a Memphis barbecue girl, but I feel like that's, and I think that that really changes kind of your scope of understanding of kind of what's important because it also under, opens up your world to understanding the dynamics of kind of what's going on in France, right? Are we going to be able to get chartreuse? because there's an embargo because of this, yeah. right? What's going on with Mexico? How is that going to impair our ability to get our hands on mezcal, right? Or agave spirits or Mexican wine, whatever it may be, right? I think that um, so much of the, specifically the American and Canadian drinking culture is imported, which already puts a great emphasis on trying to understand the whole globe. And I mean, we haven't even touched the category of rum, mm. right? Um, which is another thing. And, I, and food just isn't like that. Um, you know, there's yeah. a conversation yeah. in rum right now about how should rums be categorized. They've previously been categorized by their kind of colonial monarchers, and, and should that remain the same or not? And, I, you know, those aren't, there are comparable conversations, but they don't happen as often as they do in the beverage world, which is why I say that, you know, if you were gone from this industry with no type of interaction for two to three years, you'd come back and you'd feel as if you didn't know anything. Yeah. 
Yeah, it does. It's fast paced in certain ways, isn't it? And I think it's easy to think that things are not moving quickly. But actually, like you say, if you take time out for a couple of years, you see a lot of change in, in the beverage industry, especially these days. Tell me a little bit more about your, your, the symposium itself. Like when you when you put together one of these um, uh, uh, events, like what? How many how many speakers are we looking at? How many people will turn up? Um, all that kind of stuff. So the first year started off itty bitty, 125 people. It was super intimate, um, and that was kind of the goal. Um, and then next year we doubled in size, which we were not prepared for. Um, I will be completely honest, um, but we're still. Right, and then the third year was online, and we had twenty thousand new interactions. Uh, we hosted it on Twitch, um, so that is a lot of growth. And it was after that; it was that year that we decided to go biannual. So it's not; it didn't happen this year. It'll happen next year. Um, in terms of speakers, uh, yeah, because it's also I tell people, you know, while it is fun, this conference is definitely also labor for the person who is coming. And what I mean by labor is that um, there's a lot of conversations that people have been wanting to have, but it takes a kind of, it's a little bit of an exercise, right? Because they're really upfront discussions. Um, in terms of speakers, there's generally a panel day and an experience day. Um, and the experience day is really about getting people in a space or in, in some type of space to experience something as a collective group to then be able to have discussion about. Um, because I think a lot of times what we do mm. is at the conferences, we have people sitting at rooms being talked at and giving them drinks and then they move on, right? And we are trying to create something where we really create community. A lot of people leave our conference and start businesses together, meet their best friends, get married, you know, get engaged, just found out someone is getting engaged who met, who met at our conference and those things. Oh, wow. Yeah. And those, Amazing. Yeah. And, and those things happen because we allow a lot of time and we structure a lot of time um, for people to have really in-depth conversations with one another. Um, I, the third year, I think we had 35 speakers total. Was how many we had? Oh, that's that's, um, that's quite a few. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and some of them were panels, some of them were independent. We had a conference that was completely about brown spirits, um, and it. But we also integrated people like the ACLU, right, to have discussions about kind of like what the lockdown meant for hospitality workers, what they should be paying attention to, things of that nature. And that's kind of like always our goal is to kind of say, you know, the political isn't divorced from having fun and having a, a constructive space where we have a serious conversation isn't gonna, isn't gonna prevent us from turning up later. Mm. We can do both, we can do it all. And I believe that people have the capacity to do all of that. Cause you did, didn't you do something called America's Table? Uh, during COVID as well, right? It was just raising awareness of sort of hospitality workers. Yeah, I mean that didn't. Really, I shouldn't say it really didn't happen. I think that that fell short. I think we all thought that the hospitality industry. I thought we were going to be in. The, I think everybody went in this thinking this was going to be something we were in for six to nine months, not three years. Um, so it kind of disintegrated pretty quickly in terms of people's capacity. But we gave people a ton of resources. Um, in terms of kind of what they could do, how they could talk to their landlord about being a, unable to pay rent, what are some way, what are some kind of resources they could get in order for like short term work, things of that nature. Um, and then our big thing that we we're supposed to be doing um, was to do the hospitality census, which the idea is to start it in America. Um, this one is obviously really focused on the impact of the pandemic, but the idea is to do one every two years. Um, and to really begin to gain data about kind of where are hospitality workers, what are the issues that are, they are really concerned about, what are the problems that we're seeing, you know, maybe just regionally, or what are we seeing nationally? And my hope is that one day it will be a global thing and we'll be releasing global briefs um, that anybody can have access and read. I think it's pretty crazy that we're in... 2022 and there's still no brief that is public to anybody who wants to be interested about the hospitality industry in trends. Um, there are briefs out there, but they are expensive. <laughs> 
and generally they don't focus on laborers. You have unions for hospitality in certain states, is there, or certain cities? How does that work? The only place that is unionized as a city is Las Vegas, but from there it's business to business. So Starbucks now, I believe, has four of their businesses who are unionized. Amazon has one location that is uh, unionized, not the whole, it's not the whole company. Um, I mean, Condé Nast, for Condé Nast that has Bon Appetit, just unionized. America is very behind in terms of unions, and that's also why we need to be having discussions directly from laborers, right? Um, because right now, a lot of the information we get is from the top down, and no offense, I don't trust the person who signs the check or it's going to determine their bottom line for it to be honest about what laborers are saying. Mm. Yeah. I think the ambition of um, what you're suggesting, though, like to, uh, to, to do this report and to, to survey all these hospitality workers in America, potentially globally, is amazing, though. I think um, it could be such a valuable tool to have, like you say, a biannual report on where everyone's at. And obviously the data, the data points are key, right? Got to collect the most useful possible data without it being, you know, here's 500 questions <laughs> about what it's like being a hospitality worker. Yes, our survey is about um, seven to 10 minutes. Um, um, the, last time we, the last time we timed it, um, a lot of people want it to be five minutes, but the reality is that you can't really do a lot with five minutes in a survey. Um, the information mm. will be very, very oversimplified. So seven to ten minutes, and our, my goal, and it's a very lofty goal, and if I get anywhere near it, I'll be very proud, but the goal is to get a million people to fill it out in America, which I don't think is insane when we know millions of people are in the industry. Um, so right now we're talking to organizations that work with hospitality workers. Um, we are reaching out to large hospitality groups um, and hotels to try to figure out what are the best way. Right now we're kind of like assembling kind of city associates who can help us and influencers who can help us get the most people to fill it out as possible. Um, and what's also great about this is that, you know, we, this is open to undocumented people. This is, this is open to everyone. Um, and we will also allow owners, uh, owners to fill this out too because it's not just about uh, laborers, it's also about small business owners. Nice. Um, I, I mean, you, you've got a background in sociology, right? Do you think it's something that, um, like, would it, it's a useful sort of skill for bartenders and hospitality workers in general for them to understand sociology a little bit better? No, I mean, I think that like, you know, sociology being the study of people, I think it's helpful for everybody in our industry because we work so closely with people to understand understand our interactions. I don't know if everybody needs to be a sociologist necessarily and, or know how to crunch data or know how to create studies or things of that nature. Um, mm. But I do think that it's helpful for people to read the work of sociologists, absolutely. And I de definitely think it's important for people in our industry to be able to discern um, if the data being put in front of us is, is unbiased or not, right? Um, I think those things are very important. I think there's, there's probably an argument that a, a really good bartender is a bit of a sociologist, right? Because they understand people and interactions and you know, someone who's a skilled host. Yeah, I mean, a sociologist doesn't mean you really understand people, though, right? Like, a sociologist is looking at cohort-based things and generally something very specific. Yeah. Um, you know, you could be a sociologist. But Yeah, the behavior and be, like, have horrible interactions with people in real life, <laughs> right? Like, it doesn't <laughs> <It's true. laughs> mean about your ability to actually relate people. There are sociologists who never actually talk to any of the people who are filling out, right? So, um, and there's different levels of that. There's also people who do these like qualitative studies that do really in-depth research with subjects and spend a lot of time with them. Um, I would say, yeah, one is about the behaviors and trends. And I think what we do is something much different and I'm not saying that we're more psychologists because we're absolutely not. But I would say that we, you know, hospitality workers are care workers and our work runs much more alongside of kind of 
mental health support systems more than I think the public realizes. Um, and that can be in a healthy or unhealthy way. Um, there are people in our businesses who are coping in unhealthy ways. There are people who come to our businesses to get relief um, in healthy or unhealthy ways um, or in neutral ways. There are people who come to celebrate with us. Um, there are people who come and dump at us while we're in our wells, right? Um, because they're lonely and they don't have other people to talk to. Um, and I don't think that we're unique in that. I think service professionals in general um, have become this much needed kind of outlet um, in a world where there is limited safety net um, in access to mental health support. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I'd never, I mean, I'd, you know, obviously thought uh, before about how a bar is a multi-purpose space, you know, different people come for different reasons. You know, some people come because they want to feel special and spend a lot of money and get kind of looked after in that way. And other people, as you say, it's for an agony aunt, it's for, you know, a shoulder to lean on or someone to talk to like a confessional. Um, but it, for most people, you're going, you know, I guess, especially if you're on your own, um, you're going there for some reason. Um, when you're, it's groups, it's perhaps slightly different because it is just a third space then. Well, no, I think regardless of even if you go for the group, you are going for a space that, you know, Priya, and I'm forgetting her last name, wrote a book about gathering. And um, I think that we forget that even if people aren't coming together with you, if you provide the space worth of gathering, you're still, con they chose it for a reason. And people gather for belonging. Right. Um, and so regardless of whether you're an active part of that gap, gathering, meaning you personally, if you're in the space helping support that gathering, then you are still a part of their system and formula to belong. Yeah. Yeah. You're providing the location and the sort of safe place for them to be able to to do that. We did a, I did a seminar of quite a few years back now um, with Claire Warner at Tales of the Cocktail um, called Anthropology of the Modern Bar. And it was kind of around this, this topic around how sort of a lot of human history is kind of written into hospitality venues that we visit and how the bartender sort of takes on the role as of sort of shaman, um, you know, uh, doctor, chief, um, perhaps the, uh, you know, the... Uh, the, the medic um, of the of the tribe or whatever, and you know anyway, it, it went on like that and kind of trying to kind of piece together what a, what the function of a bar is and how these things are reflected in our history. Yeah, I mean, I think I think bars, and again, I think it just depends on what type of bar you are. But I think people have their favorite type of bars for a reason. You know, um, I think people go to dive bars. You know, if you go to dive bar on one day versus a hotel bar, it's because you're looking for two different types you're looking for two different types of things, right? Um, and they can both be a, a sense of belonging or a sense of, sometimes, and when I say belonging, it doesn't mean that you're like, oh, I come here and I feel safe and blah, blah, because, you know, safe spaces don't exist, but brave spaces do. But I think it's this, I think it's the I dot idea that um, I feel comfort here. Um, I feel, and, and comfort is something that is a part of belonging, or I feel, um, this place makes me feel valued. I spend money here, um, and although it's transactional, I am looked at or catered to in a way that makes me feel valuable. All of those things are things that bring comfort and a sense of belonging. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, I keep trying to say this, but we're not selling, we are selling drinks, that's just, but what we're really selling is our emotional labor. Um, which is something that I actually think is like dying in our industry, which is really, really unfortunate. Um, but I, but that's really what we're selling. Like what we're selling is an experience. Um, it just happens that drinks and food and decor are part of creating that experience. But the experience is actually what you're selling. Yeah, the drink is what you charge for. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess there's an argument that if if, if every bar tomorrow said you're coming here for the experience. That's what you're paying for. We know it. Um, people would be less inclined to come because it was almost like they've been called out. Whereas if we can kind of all agree that it's drinks that they were here for, you know, nothing else, um, then it's sort of a nice bit of, 
you know, smoke and mirrors to, to the sort of the, the real deal that's underneath all of that? Well, the biggest thing about hospitality is that you're not supposed to, it's, it's tricks and mirrors, right? And the people who are really good at it are the people who never break the fourth wall. Um, it is like theater. Um, and the thing about theater is that people don't want you to tell them the show. They want you to show them the show. No one would go to the theater if it was like written down, act one, you will see, right? Like that's not the purpose, right? And so I also think that we have built a culture specifically in America and Canada where people don't realize how reliant they are on service professionals to find out what their needs are. Um, I tell people all the time, if any other industry you walked in and the only thing you told them was that I want this drink and this drink and this food and they have no other information about you, you would not expect them to be able to provide you with a good time with that limited amount of information. But in hospitality, we expect people to be able to do so. Mm. Which implies a yeah. host of yeah. whole other skills. The ability to read tone, the ability to read body language, the ability to see if someone's upset immediately when they sit at your table and de-escalate that and transform that to then be able to have a time. The ability to have great skills in conflict management when you see a table is in discourse or in conflict. It requires a level of skill that is often dismissed. Yeah, well, I mean, this is, yeah, you get kind of every human experience you can think of taking place, you know, behind the doors of a bar, um, often fueled or, you know, amplified with with alcohol and uh you know the bartender is the overseer of all this or the or the hostess or host or you know whatever it might be um maitre d and that's a that's a tough one um and not only that but they're juggling the needs of all these different people at the same time and uh it's it's a hell of a challenge and it's and when it's done well it's unnoticeable that that's even happening um, but that's the amazing thing about it. And that's the amazing thing about it. But that's also why I think that, you know, this kind of new age thing we have, which, uh, you know, as someone who's been a bartender, I don't think there's anything wrong with centering bartending, but I do think that we've done it just in the idea that we've done what chefs have done, which is making it seem as if by us being the most visible part of the cob that we are the cob, and we're not. Um, you know, all of that facilitation of that would not happen generally without a bar back um, and some spaces without cocktail servers, without mm -hmm. chefs in the back, without, but there is a whole system of people operating to make the system. Even if you are doing the front work labor, it's still, you are not the system. You are the most visible part of the system. Yeah. Do you think that's a necessary part of the system to have a kind of front person? I don't know. I think that we discount the, um, what, the ability for consumers to be able to acclimate to what we give them. Um, you know, I remember when people thought it was weird to put salt in a cocktail. When people had no clue what amaros were, right? I'm sure you do too, right? Um, consumers are, are able to acclimate to changes. Um, as someone who's been all of the above, cocktail server, bartender, I haven't been a bar back, sommelier, you know, I've worked everything from fine dining to, you know, hole in the walls. I think that the places I enjoyed working most is places where the staff interchange, you know, worked all different types of roles. Um, where, you know, you weren't a bartender every day. Some days you were on the floor, some days you were a thing. I think because that really shows that people understand the way, the, the needs of each part of the system in order to make us successful. Because the reality is that no one, unless you're at like a one seat or two seat place, um, even if you're at an omakase bar that only has 10 people, it doesn't matter how intimate or how large it is. The experience of one group of people affects the experience of others, even if you are the conductor for these set of people. So it relies on everybody. Um, guests yeah. can feel when someone else in the space is having a very uncomfortable or unpleasant time. It seeds into the energy of the entire place. So yeah, I think it is. I think it's important to realize that we are all working to have pleasant, enjoyable customers because we realize that their experience are not divorced from the, you know, from each other. I guess my point was more about not that certain individuals um, should get, you know, the status or the limelight or whatever for whatever 
their their particular role within the system is, but more that it's important, it, or is it important, to have a role, regardless who who is in it, who is someone who is you know a point of contact for a customer, a full guy, a visible presence, an entity that is orchestrating, seemingly orchestrating things. You know, I definitely think that people need a point of contact. Um, I, I I don't know if need is the right word. I think it also depends on the type of business. We also see right now that a lot of people are starting to automate certain things. Um, but I think yes, people would want some type of point of of want to know who they need to be directed to. And part of the reason that they want someone to be directed to is they want someone to hold accountable for their experience. Um, And you can't do that if you don't have a point of contact. What advice do you give typically to bartenders and hospitality workers who, you know, whether whether they're trying to get ahead or trying to kind of, you know, forge a a good path through the industry, um, you know, you know, sustainable, inclusive, um, you know, trying to make the right moves and do what's right for the wider community. What do you, what, what advice do you give to them? There is no right. There's presence. You know, if you try to do things that are by a checklist, you will get a checklist career. And that may be what you want. And if that's what you want, great. Um, but I think that too many people in our industry are trying to follow a kind of predisposed formula for how to quote unquote make it. I also might not be the pers- right person to give advice on this because I have not followed any of those things um, and have done what I wanted when I saw first. Some things have worked, some things have not. Um, I think it's really about kind of where do you see and where do you want to be? And is that actually where you want to be or is it where you think you want to be because you see those people visible? You know, is the goal to have celebrity in your career or is the goal to have presence and community? Is your goal to have financial stability, right? Regardless of what's happening economically, what, what is the goal? I think, you know, years ago, there were so many people who wanted to be brand ambassadors and that was like the goal of so many people trying to transition out of bartending was to be a brand ambassador. But I think that that primarily, or to be a bar owner. And I think that those two things still remain kind of consistent things that people want to do because they don't know any other options, right? Um, And they don't have any other models for what their career could look like. I really think that people should start thinking early on, don't wait until your body starts aching to decide to kind of like what do I want to do when being front facing behind the bar might not might no longer be an option right what do I want to do now that I'm now considering having children I mean I think those are all again things that you need to be kind of having in back of mind before you get to that place um, and you need to be doing research you know looking for people kind of what their careers look like what they did um, because the reality is that, one, there are only so many brand ambassador positions. And um, brand ambassador positions are pretty formulaic. Let's just be honest. Certain types of people fit those roles. Um, certain type of people fit distributor sales roles. And so you need to have that in front of mind before that. And in terms of like what you want to do in this industry for social good, you know, what do you have the skill set for, right? Um, and if you don't have that skill set, go get it. I have people, I get so many emails a day and DMs a day that's like, how did you get here? And it's like, yeah, you know, the parts of my story that people see are visible make it seem like I've been, a, you know, in the industry and then became this person who is an activist and, 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 and it just went from one to the other. But I had a whole other life outside of the industry that I was operating in simultaneously that gave me the skill set that when I decided I did want to do more in terms of um, mobilizing and social um, justice work and activism that allowed me to input those things rather quickly. So, you know, whatever that may be, I have mediation training. I actually have a re-up on my mediation training soon, right? I have facilitator training. You could go do that. Um, I've volunteered with um, organizations that focus on sexual assault awareness um, and gotten certified and have done my 250 hours. Like, those are all things that you can do to make sure that when you are like, yeah, I want to do something, that you have a framework for how to do it safely. 
Because I do think one thing that we get caught up in this industry with is thinking that our want and desire to do something um, means that we can't do harm. And that's not true. You can desperately want to do good in this world um, and end up doing harm. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Good stuff. Um, all right, cool. Well, look, Ashton, it's been amazing. Um, we've done uh, probably long enough, over an hour. It's good. Really great chatting to you. And I've, it's, um, it's amazing to hear the work you're up to and the sort of pushes that you're doing for, for social change and and for our industry. And I think it's great to have, um, you know, people of your experience, academic experience, um, you know, in here at the front line, kind of doing stuff for the industry. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bar Chat. I really appreciate you tuning in and giving us your time. If you haven't already, make sure you become a Diageo Bar Academy member. It's free. Head over to diageobaracademy.com for the latest industry news, events, and inspiration. And subscribe to get it emailed to you. I will see you here for the next episode.